Hey there, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Today's topic needs no substantial introduction. Questions of migration and identity have become fraught ones all over the developed world. And actually, not just in the developed world, as we'll come to discuss. The controversy has particularly exploded recently amongst European and North American lefts. As the neoliberal order falls apart and is challenged by new movements and parties of the identitarian right, the left itself is also seeming to become fractured over the question. We're all, of course, against xenophobia and exclusionary nationalism, but how exactly should we treat questions of borders, of class and internationalism? Fortunately, our guest on today's program is possibly the best person that we could think of to excavate these roots of the culturalist turn and the turn towards identity. Kenan Malik is a writer, lecturer, and broadcaster, and is the author of a number of books, all of which I would encourage you to check out. Most recently, he's come out with an updated version of From Fatwa to Jihad, From the Satanic Verses to Charlie Hebdo, and also The Quest for a Moral Compass, which is a global history of ethics. What you'll hear now is myself, Alex Hochuli, and George Hoare and Ben Fogel talking to Kenan. As announced on the previous episode, this is Ben's last episode with us. It was recorded a little while back. Finally, if you're new to Alpha Bunga Bunga, follow us on Twitter or Facebook. It's at BungaCast. If you know us and like us, leave us a review on iTunes or other podcast service, or leave us a review on Facebook. If you know us and really like us and would like to support what we do, please consider donating via our Patreon at patreon.com BungaCast. These links are all in the show notes. Thanks to all of you who've already supported us, who've already chipped in. We are planning on getting bigger and better, and you guys are playing a very important part in that. So thank you very much once again. Very happy to be joined by Kenan Malik, uh, whose writing I always go back and refer to pretty regularly. So I'm very happy to finally have him on the podcast uh, to discuss migration, identity, and a couple of other things beside. Hi, Kenan. Thanks for joining us. Hi, it's good to be on here. Yeah, so I, I want to start with um, something that seems a little bit odd for us to be discussing, but the Bernie of Notre Dame, right? This is uh, an event that, like any other mediatized you know, tragedy in quotation marks, uh, is met with a lot of whataboutery. Everything is compared to something else. It's relativized. The question's asked, if you, you care so much about this, why don't you care about whatever your pet concern sure. is? Um, so, I mean, as a starter, and maybe a bit of a philosophical starter, why are we unable to grasp a tragedy in and of itself? Why does it need to be relativized and compared? Well, I think it's inevitable that, you know, an event such as a Notre Dame fire should be construed in symbolic terms. Um, but what it has what it's become is a means of reshaping history to fit particular contemporary needs, to tell a, a particular story about France or Europe or identity and it's interesting if you look at social media in particular there are kind of two broad themes in this in the in the post fire commentary the first is of Notre Dame as symbolic of a Christian France and a Christian Europe and of course Notre Dame is a Christian building and a Catholic building and hugely important in the 
Christian and Catholic traditions and memory, but the fire and the debate around it has become a means of rewriting European history to fit the story of Europe and the contemporary European values and the Western values as primarily Christian. And then there's a second view, which, um, which is an even odder view you find on social media, which is the view of Notre Dame as symbolic of French imperialism, of the slave trade, of white privilege. <laughs> and so there are many who ask, you know, quite seriously, why should we care about the fire? But it was built in like the 14th century. I mean, it rather kind of predates French imperialism, I guess, well, in any, exactly, at least in any modern form. Right. It's, it's a completely illiterate view of history that the building whose construction began you know, centuries before France was created as a nation, or Frenchness became an identity, or before the transatlantic slave trade, before French colonialism, before people conceived themselves as white, should be symbolic of all that and of that alone. Um, so it, there is a weirdness in, in, in the way that it's, it's not weird that, that, that there are um, the, the, the fire is construed in symbolic terms, but some of the terms in which um, it's construed is, 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 is tells as much about the age in which we live. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, we can dismiss all the whataboutry like you know you care about this and you don't care about the glaciers melting or you don't care about muslim yeah. heritage being destroyed in the middle east and so on i think you can rapidly dismiss that uh, as maybe a product of the kind of discourse that happens on social media i mean it's a product of that medium so maybe rather than dwelling on that let's dig a little bit deeper into this notion of christian europe that seems to have a resurgence and actually maybe it's worth questioning you know whether it is even a, a resurgence did this even exist in the recent past so just to cite one example uh, one outlet claimed that every major western and one major non-western social and intellectual force has conspired to rid europe of christianity and the civilization it produced so obviously a very defensive uh, setup there and they conclude that this is that the burning of Notre Dame is an omen for Europe. Okay, you can dismiss that as a sort of old conservative traditionalism or reaction, uh, perhaps even having certain racist tones. But is that it? What's is there a revival of a Christian identity in Europe? Well, there, there is an attempt by many to, to see Christians or to see Europe in, in Christian terms, to see it as a as a, a, a Christian uh, continent, and to see. Um, contemporary European values, or what are seen as contemporary European values and contemporary Western values, in inverted commas, as rooted in, in, in a uh, Christian tradition. And, the, and that Christianity embodies the bedrock of Western civilization and that the notions that underlie liberalism all derive from Christianity is, is the argument that for instance, that Larry Sidentop, the, the scholar, makes in his book, in his very influential book, Inventing the Individual. And this leads to the idea that non-Christian traditions, especially Muslim immigration, threaten such values. And that this whole approach, it seems to me, is to fundamentally misunderstand both the present and the past because it greatly simplifies the history of Christianity um, and the roots modern, democratic, radical, secular values. I mean, it's true that Christianity has been the, the crucible um, for Western Europe, within which the intellectual and political cultures of Western Europe have developed over the past two millennia. But 
there are actually no, there are many roots of contemporary Europe, not just Christianity, but pre-Christian philosophies of Greece and Rome. And it's interesting that Greece and Rome, pagan traditions have in the myth of a Christian Europe become seen as continuous with the Christian tradition. Uh, or Islam, which not only mm. ruled. Pe- people think that the, the idea that Islam doesn't belong to Europe, people forget that Islam not only ruled, but shaped large parts of Europe for centuries. Uh, also, there's the continuity between Christianity and Judaism. If I remember correctly, uh, Jews used to get on the sharp end of the stick of Christians for many centuries. Well, sure. I mean, the, the very notion of the Judeo—I mean, the Judeo-Christian tradition—that very notion is a is a is barely a century old. Um, it only became popularized in the 1930s um, in America as a means of creating opposition to Nazism. So it's it's only in that context, um, and and even then there were many sections of the Christian Church who resisted the idea of a Judeo Christian tradition. Um, so th- that's a kind of modern way of, of recasting history to imagine that there's a kind of history of the Judeo Christian tradition when most of the history was of the persecution of Jews by by, by the Christian tradition. Um, and it's worth, you know, going back to this point about Islam, it's worth um, remembering that it's through Islam that Greek thought, which is now seen as continuous with Christian thought, was reintegrated into Christian philosophy via um, Thomas Aquinas and, 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 and his followers. And then you have, you know, the Enlightenment and the radical end of which developed its arguments in opposition to Christianity. Um but it's a radical end of which with his arguments about equality and secularism, which has most shaped uh, the modern world. So there's a, there's, a, there's a difference between saying Christianity is a crucible within which Europe developed its, his, its intellectual and political thought and saying Christi- uh, Christianity fa- provides a foundation of contemporary Western values. I mean, modern notions of secular rights that now constitute what um, many would call European and Western values. Those would have left Christians in the past, such as you know Dante or Erasmus or Aquinas, quite bewildered because it would not have fitted with their view of um, rights and duties. Mm. Whereas they would have recognised the ideas of. Islamic thinkers such as Ibn Rushd, Ibn Sinya, as much closer to their worldview. You know, there is, it's not that Christianity is not crucially important to the, to the development of Europe and the modern world, but that the history of Europe and of the traditions that shape it is far more complex and that there is no single set of European values that transcends history and binds together the Christian tradition or the Judeo-Christian tradition or however you want to put it. Right. And, and for listeners who do want to know more on this, I would recommend checking out Kennan's book on the history of moral thought, which traces this trajectory and some of the contradictions there very well. And it's a brilliant introduction, actually, if, you haven't, if you're not really familiar with the history of moral thought. So to ask a question on this and to bring it up to, I guess, more a contemporary period, by which I mean the second half of the 20th century, the, I mean, the founders of modern Europe, that is to say, post-war Europe, which is the Christian Democrats, 
I mean, they didn't necessarily have too much of a of a consciousness of themselves as, as creating a Christian Europe, did they? I mean, I don't know if there's a more recent route to this revived notion of a Christian Europe by by populists, by right wing populists. Yeah, the 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 recent note, the, the recent roots lie in um, anti Islam sentiment. In a sense, um, the idea of Christian Europe has resurrected itself as hostility to Islam and to Muslim immigration has grown. That, that's the context. If, if you go back to post-war Europe, the idea of Christian democracy developed in the context of a, of a post-war world where traditional conservative um, thought had been discredited by uh, the 30s, by depression, by Nazism, by the Holocaust and so on. And so it was refounded around the ideas of, of, of Christian democracy. Is there any way to understand this notion, which is being mobilized in a more Catholic sense by the Law and Justice Party in Poland or by Salvini in Italy, uh, or in other forms by Orban, um, the AFD in Germany as well, trying to mobilize this? Is there any way to understand this other than it being a code for racism? And would you understand it in those terms? I wouldn't, it's not necessarily a code for racism. It's a search for identity, and that search for identity takes many forms. But one of the key drivers of that particular search for identity is the sense that um, Muslim immigration, immigration more broadly, and Muslim immigration in particular, is undermining um, core values so what what we have is 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 a is a situation where traditional politics and moral codes are breaking down where the old fault lines of left and right um as we've talked about many times you know are have eroded where there's no um clear political map that anybody has on which they can place themselves um and so people look for that such a political map and look for reasons for um, the breakdown of um, those traditional values and, the, and, and those traditional norms, those traditional markers. Um, and for and immigration, migration in particular, has become symbolic of change and change for the worse. And Muslim immigration in particular has become symbolic of that change. And therefore, it's, it's in that context that much of the discussion about Christian Europe and European identity um, presents itself now. And what is very often absent from any discussion of this, at least the mainstream discussion, is the notion of class in anything other than the broadest cultural terms and not even then. I thought it was interesting uh, that Andrew Marr on on the BBC said the other day, uh, this kind of did the rounds and people were uh, reacting to it. Maybe I'm not even sure if for for the reasons that I would react wrongly to it, which is that he said, waves of migration and globalized culture washed among us, eroding our sense of self, but the self-confidently multi-ethnic liberal urban class barely noticed. I mean, you know, in the UK, at least, which is the, exa- the, the case that he was mainly referring to, the working class is precisely more multi-ethnic than, than, the, ultra, than, the, than the upper class. 
So it seems a bit odd to be coding class in 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 these cultural and quasi racial terms. Um, you know, you've written about how we often hear about repeatedly, in fact, the white working class such that it almost seems to all run together. But you never hear about the black working class or even the Muslim working class. Uh, so can you comment on that? Sure. That, that Andrew Marr piece, I think actually isn't a recent one. I think it's, a, it's being replayed now. Um, it, it, it got picked up on, no. on Twitter. But it comes from 2016 after the, uh, the, the Brexit referendum. And I think it's just being replayed now. But but the the points point that um, Mar is making there that kind of fear of that immigration has created this um, this well of um, discontent, and that um, that kind of multi ethnic middle class urban middle class has ignored um, the, the the impact of immigration on the rest of society. That that that's something that that's um, obviously, um, something that that that, that, that ha- has a lot of purchase today, and it's worth remembering that that this actually has the argument back to front. That the grievances that working class people feel, um, some of which exploded in the Brexit vote and in support for populists across Europe, are real. Grievances about stagnating wages, about um, uh, job losses, about a, a lack of a political voice, and so on. But that migration is not responsible for any of those grievances. So the question we, we need to ask is, why is migration become symbolic of the problems that working class people face. I've actually had that, had that exact question noted down to ask you, but that's good, you <laughs> run with it. <laughs> why, why has it become symbolic of, um, of working class grievances? And I think there are, there are a number of threads to this, but the two most important are the ways in which we talk about immigration and the changing character of, and language of class, something which you, which, which you just alluded to. So on migration, from the beginning, immigration is being viewed as a problem or even as a threat that needs to be sorted out from, from all sides of the political spectrum. That's how immigration is viewed. And so it's become symbolic of change and of unacceptable change. Now, immigration clearly changes societies, but immigration is not the only or the most important driver for change. You know, had not one migrant set foot in Britain or France or America, these would be very different societies than they were half a century ago. So everything from the decline of old industries to the rise of social media, from the emergence of pop culture to um, the acceptance of women's equality, um, from the growth of youth as a social force to the disintegration of the, of the left, a whole host of social, political, economic developments have transformed society sometimes for the better sometimes to the worst, and often to a far greater degree than has immigration. But it's immigrants who become primarily symbolic of change and of change for the worst. And that's at least partly because of the way that immigration has been framed by all sides. 
Um, does this also feed into something else, which is kind of the return of white identity, whiteness? I mean, I don't really want to use that term, but it comes with a lot of uh, sort of associations. But the idea of like a white identity has become history, stability, tradition, rather than something which is uh, re- relatively constructed recently in some cases, or something which has just reemerged as a political issue. Does that sort of fit into this dialogue too, the idea of uh, white, white identity is tradition? It does, and, it, and that this, in fact, leads from the second point, which is about a changing character and language of class. Um, as what we've seen is over the past three decades, or more than three decades, a whole host of economic and social changes, you know, from the decline of manufacturing industry, the crumbling of the welfare state, the coming of austerity, the atomization of society, the growth of inequality. And these have combined with a series of political shifts such as the erosion of trade union power and the transformation of social democratic parties and and their shift away from the traditional working class constituencies to create in sections of the electorate a sense of anger and disaffection and precariousness and and a sense of being abandoned, politically abandoned. And the forms of social organisations that once gave working class lives their identity, their solidarity, their dignity, they, they, much of that has disappeared. Now, that marginalisation and, and of the work class has been largely the product of economic and social changes, but many have come to see it as primarily a cultural loss because the very decline of the economic and political power of the working class and the weakening of labour organisations and the shift of social democratic parties, the consequence of that has been to obscure the economic and political roots of social problems. And all this has happened at the same time as culture and identity have become the primary mediums through which social issues are refracted. So um, it's over in, in, in exactly the same period and for, for often the same reasons, we've seen the rise of the politics of identity and to see social problems in terms, much narrower terms of identity. And all this, the fragmentation of the working class, the decline of radical social movements, the rise of identity politics, the shift, if you like, from the politics of ideology to the politics of identity, which is the, you know, the key shift that's taken place over the past 30 years. All that shaped working class perceptions of their problems. And so as culture and identity have become the mediums through which social issues are refracted, so many within the working class have also come to see those, their problems in terms of cultural identity. And they've, they've turned to the language of identity because that's all they've got left to express their discontent. And so the language of politics and of class has given way to the language of culture and identity. And in that process, class has come to be seen, as, as you suggested earlier, not as a political but as a cultural or even racial attribute. But I guess the, the question's raised then, do you think, or what do you think are the negative uh, or some of the negative consequences of this reformulation of um, politics in terms of, of 
uh, identity claims rather than ideological ones. Um, so you, you wrote about the 70s. Within sections of the far right, the concept of white identity was reformulated rather than rooting it in ideas of biological superiority and inferiority. Some far right thinkers began appropriating cultural arguments and ideas about difference to embed racist notions of identity. So do you think there's a way in which, I guess, pluralism is used to defend racism? It's not so much that pluralism is used to defend racism, but that um, pluralism, ironically, pluralism and racial ideologies have the same um, intellectual roots, which are in a romantic view of cultural difference. If you go back to the early, um, to late 19th, 18th, early 19th, early 19th centuries, it's through the idea, to, to, the, to the emergence of romanticism and of romantic notions of culture and of cultural difference uh, through people like Herder and the notion of Volksgeist, the idea of, of, of different peoples having been different because of their um, unique attributes, their particular cultural or um, linguistic um, historical attributes. That... That idea of cultural difference as being key to understanding uh, societies and social differences, um, that's become part and parcel of the way of thinking both on the left and on the right. On the right, it it became central to racial thought. Um, the, uh, and, and that we talk about identity politics as... Uh, a left-wing phenomenon, and there's a, a a modern phenomenon. In fact, the origins of the politics of identity lie not on the left, but on the reactionary right. It developed in the late 18th century out of the counter-enlightenment, out of um, the romantic uh, views of human differences. And its primary expression was in the concept of race. Um, the concept of race defined a group of people linked by a set of fundamental characteristics, differing from others by virtue of those characteristics, um, including not just mental and physical traits, but also social needs and aspirations and values, and that one's being, one's identity, determined one's moral and social place in the world. And this was the original politics of identity, though, of course, it was never called the politics of identity. So, so do you think this equally applies to the, the alt-right today? Because I think there's been some analyses, in, including uh, guests on on this podcast, who've who've almost seen it as a <clears throat> a refraction of of white identity politics or the the use of um, of some sec- sections of the transgressive right of or by some sections of the transgressive right of um, more left wing tropes around identity and and equality and, and things like this. Well, certainly the the. Um... The mainstreaming of identity politics by the left has cleared the ground for the resurrection of um, reactionary ideas of identity, um, uh, uh, racist ideas, notions of identity from the, from the far right. The idea of identity and, and the use of pluralism um, as a as a means of promoting racism has got a you know, there's a long history of that on the far right. And if you look back to Alain Benoist and, if, and, and the Nouvelle Droite in France in the, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, they um, made the argument that the problem with, immig- with immigration was that it's undermining 
European white identity. Um, and that they had no, no, they had no problems with Muslims or North Africans. They just should live in um, North Africa, not just in, not in France. Uh, this reminds me very much of South Africa, my, my home nation, and the whole idea of separate development, which was the yeah. foundation of apartheid, is that uh, African nations, which were then reduced into tribes, were better off developing in the fake states as Bantustans rather than collectively. There was a close relationship between um, you know, far-out notions of, of um, difference, cultural difference, um, that developed in Europe, and notions of, uh, of apartheid as, as developed in South Africa, yeah. Um, but the, the point is that in the 60s and 70s, these ideas were on the fringe, entirely on the fringe. But what has happened is that over the past 20, 30 years, um, the, the rise of identity politics and the willingness of people to say, of liberals to say, that white identity um should be seen as uh, as legitimate, as, as a legitimate viewpoint, as a legitimate aspiration, um, in this, uh, which both lim- liberal commentators and many academics do now. That uh, idea of white identity becoming um, legitimised, as legitimised, as a rebranded racism as a form of identity politics. So, accepting this and to just move the discussion a little bit forward, it seems that at least in Europe and to an extent the United States, the primary sort of contradiction, if you would like, or the way of expressing this uh, new sort of racism is around the issue of migration. And why is it migration that has captured this particular uh, fervor and reemergence of this reactionary sort of far right identity politics? For, t- for the two reasons I was talking about earlier, which is partly because of the way we frame immigration and frame immigration as a problem, and I've always framed immigration as a problem that needs to be uh, solved. And secondly, because the very language of class has become transformed. So um, we no longer talk about class, or rather class has come to be seen not as a a political, but as a cultural or a racial attribute. So, you know, everybody, sociologists, journalists, um, constantly talk about the white working class without recognising what an odd um, and odious phrase that is, but rarely about the black working class or the Muslim working class. Um, Blacks and Muslims are seen as belonging to almost classless communities, and the working class has come to be seen primarily as white, and white has become a a necessary adjective through which to define the working class. And once class identity becomes seen as a cultural or racial attribute, then those regarded as culturally or racially different are often viewed as threat, and hence the growing hostility to immigration. Uh, immigration has become the means through which many in the working class perceive their sense of um, loss of social status. And this has been exacerbated by the changing relationship between the working class, the left, and the far right. So as social democratic parties in Europe have moved away from their old working class constituencies, many sections of the working class have found themselves politically voiceless 
at the very time, their lives have become more precarious as jobs have declined, public services have been savaged, austerity imposed, and so on. Inequality has risen. And these issues have been taken up by the new identity movements of the right. And such identity movements link a reactionary politics of identity rooted in hostility to migrants and Muslims to economic and social policies that once were the staple of the left, defence of jobs, support for the welfare state, opposition to austerity. And so the result is a a new kind of mass politics and the the refashioning of the original reaction politics of identity for a new age. Through the normalisation of white identity, racism has become re-legitimised. So how how do we... um... I guess in in this context and and you know taking into account everything that you just said how do we understand the increasingly favorable attitudes to migration in in the UK and the US with more hostility elsewhere in Europe what what do you think explains this kind of empirical picture yeah i don't think there there is a single explanation um and i don't think we should look for single explanations in america um the the, the changing um Attitudes to, to, to immigration is partly the consequence of growing uh, partisan relationships or partisan divisions. So Democrats have become far more liberal mm. to immigration, while Republicans have become more hostile. In Britain, um, the there has over the past decade become a more relaxed attitude to immigration. Some have suggested that this is the consequence of uh, the Brexit referendum and the Leave vote. In fact, it started before uh, 2016. Um, the roots of it go back to about 2012, 2013. Um, and the explanations are not um, completely clear as to why that should be so. But in in Europe, there is, there is the argument that it's a migration crisis 2015 that created anti-migrant hostility, that it's the... Um, uh, the, 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 the sense of crisis created by the, the coming of refugees in 2015 and created a problem. But in fact, this, most studies suggest otherwise. There's a, a really interesting study of 20 European countries by the sociologists Vera Messing and uh, Ben Sabgari from the CEU, um, Central European University, which compared... Um, hostility to, to attitudes to, to immigration and a host of different uh, social, economic and political uh, measures. And what they found, and I quote, was that countries with a, a negligible share of migrants are the most hostile, while countries where migrants' presence in the society is large are the most tolerant. And what shapes hostility is not the presence of migrants, but perceptions of trust and cohesion. So in countries with a high level of general um, trust, of institutional trust, and um, stable, well-performing economies and high levels of um, social cohesion, um, migrants are least uh, feared, whereas people are fearful in countries where, where trust is much lower, where people don't trust each other or the state institutions, where social cohesion and solidarity are weak. And again, it's the, it's a, it's an issue of migration becoming symbolic 
of a host of other issues. And because we don't have a language through which to understand these other issues, because um, the language of the old language of politics and class has eroded so much, so they've come to be seen in through the language of identity, and migrants have come to be seen as the 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 the, 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 the cause of of such problems. So it's inevitable that the agonized discussion over migration would eventually affect the left, given the left's own confusion over a number of issues. This seems to play out along supposedly nationalist versus cosmopolitan lines, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. But it's telling that there seems to be, at least from a certain section of the left, a sense that they should be more accommodating to a position which is a little bit more critical of open borders or no borders. That's without saying that that they are becoming hostile to migration, but it's notable that, for example, Bernie Sanders recently characterized open borders as a Koch brothers position, as a neoliberal position, as a position in favor of the bosses rather than in favor of workers. So mm-hmm. how do we construct a case for open borders? Is it a strategic question? Is it a moral question? And, you know, to the extent that the working class is broadly, uh, let's say, hesitant to support anything that sounds like open borders, uh, can we tail working class attitudes or would that just be opportunistic? How, how should the left respond to the, to the question of, of borders and migration today? Well, it seems to me that the question of how the left responds to borders is the most critical one we face, because that is at the heart of how do we build the left in the, in the years to come. Now, those who argue on the left for um, against open borders or, or for stricter regulation, the, there are usually three arguments that are made with respect to this. First, that we need to take working class grievances about immigration seriously and failure to do so will aid the far right. Second, that migration is, is the Bernie Sanders argument, migration is a means used by employers to reduce working class living standards, driving down wages and so on. And third, that um, open borders requires a democratic mandate for which there is none, which is, I think, what you were hinting at. And all three arguments seem plausible, but all are wrong in different ways, it seems to me. If you take the question of grievances, in a sense, we've talked about this. Working class grievances are real, but the cause of those grievances are not migrants. The cause of the problems are not migrants. And so long as we imagine that job losses or wage stagnation or poor housing or poor education or inequality or health sector cuts are caused by uh, immigration, then the real causes of these issues, the economic and social policies, the economic and social structures, the requirements of capital, will never be addressed. So that's the first um, reason we should be wary about these arguments. Second, it's true that employers try to use migrant labour to keep down wages, to put pressure on workers. But there are two problems, it seems to me, with seeing this as an argument for tighter immigration controls. First, if we were to look at it from a purely economic viewpoint, virtually every study shows that migration has little impact on wages and that reducing immigration will not make the economic position of indigenous workers um, better. It'll, it'll actually, um, reducing immigration will, will often make it worse. And the reason is that critics of immigration all too e- often fall into the lump of labour fallacy, that is, they imagine that there's only a set number of jobs and that's 
if an immigrant takes on this one less for a local worker, what, what actually happens is that the presence of immigration often creates new jobs and opportunities. But it's important that we don't look at this from a purely economic perspective. It's a political issue. It's about the assault on working class living standards. And that assault takes place through a number of different forms, not just through the use of migrants as a reserve army of labour. Of course, migrants aren't the only group that employers attempt to use in this fashion. Women, old people, young people, unemployed and so on. Um, or can all act in that in, in that way. And few people these days would say that that's reason to exclude women from the workforce in the way they used to 50 years ago. But equally importantly, there are many other ways in which living standards are held back or rights denied from the imposition of austerity to the, the, the savaging of trade union rights. And the response in these cases should be to build structures of resistance to build working class movements and organisations to protect working class people of every kind from the erosion of rights and living standards. And that should be the same when it comes to immigration. Build movements and organisations, not to keep out migrants, but to protect them, like all workers, from exploitation and link these to the wider struggles against attacks on rights and living standards. Because the failure to do so, the 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 pursuit of the path of blaming migrants for the problems faced by the working class will make it more difficult to resist on these other issues too. And finally, on this question about, about um, a democratic mandate, it's true, that, that's, to me, that seems to be the most coherent argument and, and the most important. It's true that there is no democratic mandate uh, for um, uh, liberal immigration controls. But there's no iron law which says working class people are, are hostile to immigration. Um, many have come to be so because of some of the changes that we've been talking about from uh, the way that migration has become symbolic of their, of, of, of their problems to um, the way we talk about class uh, and, and the um, racialization, culturalization of class identity. So, while that's an important argument, and um, that's an argument for winning the argument, not for suggesting that we should um, uh, therefore uh, talk, uh, give in and, and, and talk about tighter controls on immigration or stop talking about uh, more open borders. Uh, I think that's very well put. I mean, uh, in my view, I think, uh, well, I completely agree with your arguments. There is a strategic question next is... Assuming, of course, if you take power, you cannot simply do away with borders uh, overnight. Is it much better to maybe frame the question as we need a five-year plan to institute open borders and focus specifically about what we can do in terms of alleviating the worst of border policy rather than framing it as a absolutist either-or question? No, I think, I think the, the issue is to say, what are the causes of your problems? What are the causes of um, stagnating wages? What are the causes of uh, job losses? And that's our starting point. And how do we build with resistance to, um, uh, to those attacks on living standards? That's the way we start. And that's where we, we get away from saying, talking simply about immigration, because we're not going to 
solved hostility to immigration by simply talking about immigration because the, the hostility to immigration doesn't lie with immigration. Hostility to immigration lies at another level. It lies with those other grievances. And unless we sort those other grievances out, unless we are able to address them and have a solution for them, we will never be able to um, reframe, rethink the debate about immigration. I think that's very well put. Uh, finally, how, how fundamental and durable do you think identity politics are as a force? Uh, it has reemerged in uh, recent years and is clearly part of a longer trend, a sort of rejection of universalism, which has taken on various forms. But do you think it's something which we're going to have as a long-term problem or will disappear as a, another fad? Or is it more rooted in structural issues and something which will characterize politics for the years to come? I think it will uh, characterize politics for a long time. And that's because the roots of identity politics is the erosion of a more universalist perspective. This is not just a, a, a European or a Western phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. If you look across the globe, <coughs> excuse me, what you find is that um, the old order is becoming unstitched. In Europe, that old order is represented by the relationship between the post-war relationship between conservatism and social democracy. In non-Western countries, that old order is represented by um, either the organisations or the ideologies of liberation. So organisations such as the Congress Party in India, or the ANC in South Africa, or the FLN in, in Algeria, or ideologies such as Kamalism in Turkey or Nasserism in, in Egypt, all have become discredited. But the only um, organisations or the primary organisations capable of um, giving shape to people's disaffection are those based on um, sectarian values. In Europe, sectarian values tends to be um, anti-migrant, anti-Muslim. Elsewhere, in, 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 um, in non-Western countries, it's often um, rooted in religious or ethnic uh, sectarianism. Um, so if you look at Turkey or India or um, uh, South Africa even, um, you, you can see these developments. So I think um, this is a much broader problem and a much deeper problem um, than simply a, a kind of a passing fad. And it's a problem how that we have a moment in history where there is huge disaffection with, uh, with, 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 with the mainstream order, but that the only groups capable of giving shape to that disaffection at the moment appear to be from the reactionary right, appear to be sectarian groups. That's a challenge we face, is how do we give shape to disaffection? Disaffections are good, it's how we give shape to it that we need to address. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks to the always clear-sighted Ken and Malik. If you like this, please donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bungacast. Next week, Alpha Bunga Bunga is flying off to California. We are going to be recording a range of content there on the Californian ideology, wellness, tech, Silicon Valley, and so on. Very excited to bring you that. 
All of that is actually courtesy of the University of College Irvine. We're being sponsored by the research group States of Wellness, which is funded by the School of Humanities there. If you're a listener based in the LA or Orange County area, do give us a shout. We're going to be there from the 9th to the 16th of May. All right, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <music>